universal human experience. And I can say that not because I'm inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit, but because the Holy Spirit has inspired that and it's recorded for us that we are to expect that. And we know that suffering is something that goes on. We can see that in our own life consistently, frequently. The prayer list is a constant reminder that that's going on and we need to be attuned to that all around us. And it's interesting, I've talked to several people about how I'm doing this series and I've arrived at suffering. That's the context throughout I've been mentioning and now we're focusing on that and talked about why we suffer last time and all this suffering uh, is happening at that same time. It's interesting how that works. In fact, um, the Sunday, I be, uh, last time I spoke, that Sunday on why we suffer, that evening we went for a walk in our neighborhood and we walked by a house in the back of our neighborhood that we knew a boy roughly the age of Kyson uh, had cancer and had been, this was a few years ago, it was on the news. He was made fire chief for the day and they had a big parade through our neighborhood and we thought that was cool. But Kelsey and I, not knowing this family, this kid, just uh, as a parent, as a human, you just feel awful that they're going through that, especially suffering with children and innocent suffering is, is hard to reconcile. And so we've always remembered what's going on in that house and, and prayed and thought about that family, but we were walking by that house and Kelsey said, you know, I think that kid's name is, and she said his name, and it's the name of a kid that Kyson has been talking about that he's become good friends with at school, and it's kind of a unique name. And so we're walking back by that house, and sure enough, this kid and his dad is outside, and it, Kyson recognizes his friend. He had become good friends with this kid, and we talked to his dad, met his, met his dad, and, and they played, and he was talking about what they had been through, and, and he had basically been taking chemo since he was two, and had just got off of chemo, now as a kindergartner, and hopefully in a few months he'll be declared cured of his cancer, but all this boy has known, all he can remember his entire life was suffering uh, physically, and we went back, and we shouldn't have, but we read the articles, watched the news stories, and, you know, now you even touch more by that, and it showed him taking his chemo pills that he took daily and laughing about it, and that was just, you know, a reality of life that, that he had gotten used to and had lost his hair, and his hair has grown back, and even now, though, he goes to physical therapy because the chemo hurt the bottom of his feet, and he learned to walk on his tiptoes, and they're trying to, to, uh, to, to fix that through physical therapy, and so just so inspired when you listen to his parents and those articles and then talking to him about how they leaned into their faith as people of faith and how they responded to it and how this boy responded to it. I mean, he is battle-tested, built a lot of character. I'm sure that's the kind of kid you want your kid to be friends with. Uh, but what do you say to people who are suffering? That's the context of First Peter. We've talked about the fire that Nero was rumored to have started because he wanted to rebuild the city and wanted to do some building projects and so he needs a scapegoat to squash those rumors and so he blames this new group known as Christians he tars them, he lights them on fire to light his garden parties this letter is written at the beginning of that, at this 200 year intense fiery trial and persecution of Christians, Christians were burned, they were broiled, they were scourged they were seared, they were hanged, they were horned and Peter's concern ultimately is how are you going to respond to that? Because eventually we have to change questions. We talked last time why we suffer, and that's important. That's critical. 
to be armed, forewarned, is to be forearmed with the deep theology that's going to anchor us and ground us so that we don't drift, we don't wonder, we don't walk away from what we know and are sure and believe is true. You've got to ask why. Jesus asked why, but eventually you've got to change questions from why to how. How do I respond in a way that will glorify God, bring others to Christ, and increase my hope and holiness? Because that's the why. That's the ultimate reason. And it's critical because we're called to respond in a way that glorifies God, ultimately. Christians face trials, evil, pain, and suffering, just like the rest of a fallen, flooded world. The difference is how they respond. When we think about how we respond to suffering, I can't help but think about the inspiring response to suffering of Job. In Job 1, we're given the context of his suffering. Satan's this predator going around seeing who he can devour through suffering and pain. We're going to talk about that. Peter writes about that. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. He's upright, blameless. He fears me. He shuns evil. And Satan's response is, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him? He serves you. He worships you because you're blessing him. Prosperity gospel. Peter says, don't be surprised when the fiery trials come upon you to test you as though it's some strange thing. And if you buy into that junk about a prosperity gospel, you're going to be surprised. And you're going to act and respond in shock. Touch all that he has and he will surely curse your face. And this was an attack not just on Job's character. It was ultimately an attack on God's character. He's saying humans will not exercise their free will to worship you, to serve you, to trust you because you're worthy by nature. They'll only do it if you bless them. And so what I want to just say as we talk about the specifics of how we respond to suffering, I want to say that ultimate thing we need to think about every day, whatever response we're giving to any circumstance, any situation, is you need to respond in a way that proves God is right when he said, that's my servant, that's my child, they're going to serve me, love me, trust me, no matter what happens. Respond to your adversity, your suffering in a way that proves God right and Satan wrong. That's how you respond to suffering. That's how Job responded to health, lost his wealth, and most importantly, he lost, he, he had ten funerals, ten burials for ten children. And how did he respond to that? He fell to the ground in worship. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sing that song. What's, what an inspiring statement of praise and faith. Same response David gave when he lost his child. He worshiped. Same response Peter gives in chapter one. How's he begin this epistle? On suffering. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Praise God, eyes up, and that takes the bitterness, the poison out of your pain and your suffering. Don't be surprised, Peter says. And that's so, so important. So, so helpful if you expect it. You think about if you're prepared for something, if you've just mentally prepared yourself, this could happen. How helpful that is in how you respond to it. Not in shock, but with expectation, with preparation. Don't be surprised. Job understood this. He was armed with this deep theology. I came naked and I'm going back naked. The Lord gave and the Lord take away. As his wife admonished him to 
not maintain his integrity, but to curse God and die. You speak as foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And we don't ask why God when we accept good from Him, and shall we not accept adversity? Instead of asking, why me? I need to be asking, why not me? And that takes out my pride, my entitlement, my deception, the illusion of self-control. And so we see how we respond to suffering. And in the course of this, we're going to see how, we don't, how we're not to respond to suffering. Don't lose faith. Don't walk away. Don't lose heart. Don't compromise your integrity. Don't reciprocate evil by getting hateful and bitter. Don't curse God and die. Because your problem is not really your problems. It's how you respond to your problems. That becomes the big problem. What is it that can take a Christian facing intense, fiery trials, so much suffering and pain, and channel it in a way that they profit from their problems? Like Job, they learn from their losses. Faith. That's the theme. Chapter 1, over and over. talks about suffering. That's faith. Faith. Believe. Faith. We fall back on, we lean into what we know, what we believe. And so as I've studied these epistles on loop for months and began to focus on this theme of suffering and not only why we suffer, but how do we respond to our suffering more, most importantly, I began to see some themes in terms of our response. Faith, hope, love. That's how you respond to suffering in a way that glorifies God and brings others to Christ. And so this morning, we're going to talk about, we're going to begin by talking about responding to our suffering in faith. We'll begin to talk about how we respond as a result of our faith in hope. Next time, we'll finish the discussion on responding to suffering in hope, and then how faith and hope fuel, inspire, motivate, empower the ultimate response of love. So Peter says in chapter 5, Resist him as he's trying to overwhelm you with suffering and adversity. Resist him firm in your faith. Respond by being firm in your faith. And he describes him as a roaring lion. Why is Satan roaring? Because he is trying to overwhelm you. He is trying to devour you, your faith, through suffering and anxiety. We think about Satan often as a subtle serpent transforms himself into an angel of light, and so he'll use the indirect, subtle approach, but he also will use the direct approach. This is a full frontal assault. He is roaring. There's nothing sneaky about that. He is coming at you head on and trying to overwhelm and devour your faith through suffering and through anxiety. To destroy your faith that God cares, that God has dominion, or that God even exists. Satan is seeking to devour your faith while God is seeking to test and refine your faith, and purge your unbelief and self-reliance so that He can exalt, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you in eternal glory. Satan is a predator who is seeking to separate you from God by separating you from faith and repentance. And so if that's his tactics, wouldn't it make sense that we overcome him so that we're not overwhelmed by hanging on to what he's after? If he's trying to devour you through suffering, wouldn't it make sense that we respond to that suffering by holding on to, resisting him by retaining what he's after, our faith? That's how you respond. There's two ultimate responses to pain and suffering. You can run to God in faith and trust, or you can run from God in doubt and unbelief. But if you run from God, who or what are you going to run to? Your adversary, the devil? The world? 
And so the admonition, don't waste your pain. Don't waste your suffering. Use it. Don't waste it. That would be the real tragedy. Use it to draw closer to God, to trust Him more. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to respond by drawing closer to God, by trusting God, by responding in faith, you have to focus on what you know, not what you feel. Not what you're seeing. On the news, on social media, around you. Romans 5, not only that, we glory in tribulation. How? Knowing. Our hope, he goes on to say, it's firm because of what we know. 2 Corinthians 1 a book that we're going to weave in some passages because it deals so much with pain and suffering. Paul is defending his apostleship and suffering as a minister of Christ, suffering because he's serving God. And in chapter 1, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we are so utterly burdened beyond our strength, that's the point, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. You've got to focus on what you know, not what you feel. Or you'll get discouraged, distorted, disoriented, and you'll start believing lies. Job said, for I know that my Redeemer lives. You have to know and hold on to the right things when wrong things happen. Because my response, like Job's, my response, my practice is contingent upon my theory and my theology. Notice something Peter says in this text where he's giving us basically a blueprint, a battle plan for responding to suffering in chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you see in verse 16, to glorify God in this name, if you suffer as a Christian, I believe that was being used as a derogatory name, an insult, calling them a Christian. If you're insulted for that, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What a promise. What an amazing statement. God delivers strength and comfort throughout the ages. You go back to the Old Testament, suffering martyrs and saints and heroes of faith in the Old Testament, Joshua, New Testament, over and over again. How do, what does God say to people who are facing adversity, who are overwhelmed with anxiety? What's He say over and over to comfort them? I am with you. You don't always have all the answers. You don't always need all the answers. What you need is the promise of God's presence. My wife reminds me of that frequently when our kids are in pain because uh, she'll say, they don't need the root cause analysis. That's exactly what I'm giving them. They don't need all the explanations of why this happened and how to prevent that from happening again. What they need in that moment of pain is your presence, your comfort. And I've thought about how, how do you explain people who have responded, like the little boy, people that have lost loved ones and, and come to worship? How do you explain what you see in the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, New Testament, Paul, Peter, the ultimate example of Jesus, the way they respond to suffering, to martyrdom, in an almost supernatural way? Because they have supernatural presence resting upon them. Timothy, or Paul talked about this in literally the last chapter of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4. All of, at my defense, my trial, all abandoned me. No one stood by me. They all deserted me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. You know what Paul says when he talks in 2 Corinthians 12 about his thorn in the flesh we've talked about? Whatever brings me closer to God is a blessing, not a curse, even if that's pain and suffering. 
So he says in chapter 3, don't be afraid. We talked about that some last time. In chapter 4, don't be ashamed. In chapter 5, don't be anxious. Because those things make us weak and vulnerable to compromise. What's the connection in chapter 5 between humility and anxiety? How do those two things relate? I thought about that a lot. He's talking about humility, and all of a sudden, he's talking, what's the connection there? The biggest threat here seems to be not the actual suffering, but our pride. What's the connection? He's been talking about humility throughout this epistle, submission. We talked about that theme, which is only possible by humility. He's talking about humility at the beginning of chapter 5 when he talks about elders leading with servant leadership. And now all of you submit to one another, serve one another in humility. Humility, humility, and all of a sudden that leads him into talking about anxiety. Verse 7 is not a new sentence, it's part of verse 6. It's a subordinate clause. Casting our anxieties on the Lord is not just the result of our humbling ourselves, it's part of that process. You humble yourself before the Lord by casting your... They're they're interconnected, they're interrelated, it's part of that process. And something about the command to humble ourselves causes us to be anxious. Why? Because when I cast my burden upon the Lord, it is an admission that I need grace, that I'm not perfect, that I have problems, that I need help, that I'm not self-reliant, that there's a mightier hand than mine. And I want to tell you, if you're proud, you won't do that. You'll try to handle it yourself. Humility means that you can, when you submit, we've talked about this, you could lose rights. And that makes us anxious. Obviously, doesn't it? And he said, you've got to get rid of the anxiety and embrace faith and trust that God cares for you. That allows us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and humble ourselves in submissive service to others. We're humble, we're weak, under the mighty hand of an omni-God, and yet in that state and condition, we're completely confident and at peace. Why? Because that hand cares for us and carries our anxiety. And there's a link also between humbling ourselves and resisting the devil. We see that in 1 Peter 5 in a parallel passage in James. Almost the same language, phrases, words. You humble yourself, you resist Satan by humbling yourself because that invites the grace and power of God into your life. You can't resist Satan and respond to your suffering on your own. You can't resist Him without God's help. And you invite God's help and God's presence into your life by humbling yourself. And when you do that, you humble yourself and invite the grace and power of God into your life. Satan flees from you. Satan runs from you. Cast all your anxieties on Him. The word for cast is also found the exact same word in Luke's gospel account when they put their coats on the donkey that Jesus was going to ride on. It literally means transferring a load. Letting someone else carry it for you. Trust transfers the load. God wants you to trust Him to carry your load. And I don't have to know all the answers. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to understand all the whys to do that. That's the lesson Job learned. He kind of crossed the line and questioned God and asked why. And eventually God puts him in his place by doing what? Giving him a science lesson. Where were you when I made this? Do you understand how this works and this works? You don't see everything. You don't know everything. You don't know and you don't see what I see. And Job's response was, I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not, I repent. 
I don't have to know everything to know that He is faithful, He is dependable, He is trustworthy, He is able, He is God. That I'm going to suffer for a little while, even if that's for the rest of my life and compared to eternity, and after that He is going to restore all the losses, He's going to confirm all the uncertainties, He's going to strengthen all the weaknesses, and He's going to establish me in the glory of Christ forever. That's what I need to know. The dominion belongs to the God of all grace, and that's great news. So say to Satan, say to your suffering, the God of all grace who has all dominion has called me to all glory in Christ. After I have suffered for a little while, you can hurt me, you can tempt me, you can kill me and those I love, but you cannot devour my faith. You can't stop the God of all grace and dominion and you will not steal my glory. I'm not giving that up. Because I will not stop believing. I won't stop rejoicing. I won't stop hoping. I won't stop loving, serving, submitting, overcoming evil with good. Why? How? Because I believe verse 10 with all of my heart. And when I believe that with all my heart, I will entrust my soul to a faithful creator. I will endure while suffering unjustly, even in submission. And that's what Jesus did. To do that, this is one of the most humblest things you can do right here. And to do that, you have to have a good theology. You have to have a deep faith and a deep hope and a, and a deep trust. Into your hands I commend my spirit. And a multitude of verses teach us that the purpose in our suffering is to cause us to quit relying on ourselves, but to rely on the one who raises the dead, who turns crucifixions into resurrections, into a faithful creator. Not just what he's created in the past, what he's creating right now, what he will create for you in the future. He's already created you twice, at birth and at your new birth, 1 Peter chapter 1. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Therefore, don't be anxious, Matthew 6. I know a lot about my children. I know them about as well as anybody on this earth. But their Father in heaven knows and loves them more. He knows the number of hairs on their head. And the same God that created the mountains created you and is with you. That mighty hand is over you, not to crush you, it's over you to care for you. And you need to put your faith and trust in that. Truths about suffering you need to have faith in. Number one, all of your suffering will end one day if conditional your faith, hope, and love is in Jesus. One of the things about suffering is it causes us to feel like our present circumstances are permanent. But if you have a living hope and a living faith, suffering is never permanent. It's a little while, even if the suffering is for the rest of your earthly life. God will exalt you above it all soon. Keep the faith. Number two, you are not alone. Don't believe the lie of Satan and Eeyore that you're all alone. Because you're not. God is with you and so is His army. So is your brotherhood who's experiencing the same things. His family is with you. And number three, God cares for you. Don't believe the lie that He doesn't or that He's powerless to help, that He doesn't have the dominion. The God of all grace that cares for you has the dominion. Think about the story of a mother with her child, and they went through a store, and there was a bunch of junk at the beginning of the store, and the child kept grabbing these junky toys, and the mom would take it away from him, and got more and more discouraged and disappointment, and tears filled his eyes. But eventually they got to the back of that store, and now there were things that actually had value, the treasures. And he got something and he said, you're not taking this away from me? And now all of a sudden, all the pain, all the tears, 
All the losses were forgotten because she wouldn't let him settle for second best. That's exactly what God's doing with us in this life. He will not let us settle for anything less than the best. Glory in Christ. Jesus could have got John the Baptist out of prison, Peter and Paul from being beheaded or crucified. So many faithful men and women that gave, he could have got them out of that situation. Think about how did Paul reconcile this ministry where he's taking the gospel of the whole world, but time after time there's roadblocks, there's hindrances. He's trying to serve Christ and he's given a thorn in the flesh. How do you reconcile that? God's with me and for me and the goal is to evangelize the world. That's the context Submit, suffer, be holy in a way that will bring others to Christ. And yet in the process of evangelizing, we have all these roadblocks. How do I harmonize that with the providence of God and the sovereignty of God? Because not only is God interested in evangelizing the world, He's interested in increasing the hope and holiness of His people in the process. And only God knows how to balance those two things. So what did Jesus tell John the Baptist, essentially? (laughs) Trust me. How do we trust people? Track record. Never once have I ever walked alone. Never once have you left me on my own. You are faithful, God, you are faithful. And when that's our anthem, when we really believe that, we really know that, we really experience that, we can join Job in making one of the greatest statements of faith ever recorded, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. Pray that. Speak that into your heart, into your mind every day, especially in moments of faith crises, on bad days. Daniel 3, I know you're able and I know you can. Save through the fire with your mighty hand, but even if you don't, my hope is you alone. Respond in hope as a result of your faith because that's a vital, our hope is a vital component of our faith because part of what we believe, so much of what we believe is about the future. Hebrews 11 verse 1, the definition of faith, it's conviction regarding the unseen. We're going to talk about next time in regards to our hope. Conviction regarding things that we can't see, realities we can't see, that gives us a confidence regarding our future, a hope for our future. They're interconnected. Faith, hope. You can't be a Christian and believe your future is bleak. You believe that He is, and a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, that don't walk away. The first imperative in this epistle is the verb hope, in the adverb, fully. And if we truly hoped fully in the grace of God in heaven, we would experience suffering so much differently, wouldn't we? It wouldn't eliminate the pain, but it would give it perspective. Meditation on heaven is a painkiller. Suffering is just part of the journey to unfading glory. The end of the road, the end of the path, and the struggle is the road to heaven. There's a place of eternal healing. And faith and hope can take the darkest night of your life and give you hope because you see the morning day star rising in your heart. You see hope of joy coming in the morning. It can take you through the fiercest storm because you have hope of peace and calm eventually. It can take you out of the lowest valley above the highest mountain because hope claims a resurrection. Believers grieve differently because we grieve with hope. Hope the world doesn't know. Hope the world. We know the outcome. We know how the story ends. And that's so important because we quit when we lose hope. C. Neil Strait wrote about this when he said, Take from a man or boy his wealth and you hinder him. Take from him his purpose and you slow him down. But take from man his hope and you stop him. 
He can go on without wealth and even without purpose for a little while, but he will not go on without hope. Think about the story of a boy who was in a baseball game and they were getting beat 18 to nothing. And a man, an adult, said, y'all are really getting beat. And the boy said, no, sir, we haven't been to bat yet. If you're going to have hope in the present pain, you have to have a bigger perspective. You have to have a longer timeline. Rejoice, even while grieved. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, sorrowing, yet always rejoicing. This paradox of pain and pleasure that go together. Rejoicing in grief. While grieve about how, why, hope. That's the theme throughout this epistle. Submitting to others, even that are treating you unfairly. Submitting, how, why, hope. Not returning evil for evil. Not reciprocating, how, why, hope. Rejoicing in suffering with Christ. How, why, hope. Serving with servant leadership. Not the way the world serves with coercion and pride and selfishness, but as servant leaders. How, why, hope. Serving one another in a world that doesn't esteem and value submission and service and humility. It doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't help you climb the... How, why, hope. Resisting. Firm in your faith. Denying self. How, why, hope. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. I experience greater joy suffering with Christ than being praised by the world. That's how. Call me a Christian. Persecute me. For, thank you for the privilege of any association with Jesus Christ. So here is joy, not just in spite of pain, but because of it. It's like the thorn in the flesh. This paradox for a Christian, pleasure and pain go together. And so Peter gives us two reasons why you can rejoice even in the midst of tremendous pain and suffering. Chapter 1, in this you rejoice, refers us back to what he's just written. Because you've been born again to a living hope through the gospel by obeying the gospel. Your inheritance in heaven is being guarded by sovereign God through your faith. And it doesn't perish, spoil, or fade. In this we greatly rejoice. Number two, because of the plan and purposes in your suffering we talked about last time, because of what it's doing. Don't just look to the ultimate outcome, to heaven, but also to what it's doing for you right now. It's refining, it's testing, it's proving, it's purifying, it's purging, it's glorifying, so that you can experience that ultimate glory more fully. And so Paul says in Romans 5, glory Exalt and tribulation. And that could be physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. It could be an accident. It could be an inconvenience. It could be cancer. It could be a car wreck. Anything that challenges your faith and your trust in God. And we're called to exalt in tribulations. And that's exactly what Paul did. And with his storm in the flesh. I boast, I will gladly rejoice because it's bringing me closer to Christ. The gospel has got an audience it wouldn't have had through my pain and suffering. How? Why? Because we're standing in grace, verse 2. People ask, how are you so happy? How do you still have joy? Because I'm standing in the grace of God. And as I'm standing in the grace of God, I have peace. Where did you get that? Because I've been justified by faith. I trust the one who loved me and gave himself for me. I became a child of God through faith, repentance, and baptism, Galatians chapter 3. Because tribulation produces perseverance, endurance. Now, it doesn't do that for everyone. 
It's not an absolute statement. It produces hate, bitterness, anger, retaliation in many people. It does this for people who are Christians and whose response is Christian. Because I'm becoming stronger, more refined as I'm challenged with something painful and I keep trusting, I keep hoping, I keep loving, I keep serving instead of giving in to bitterness, hate, complaining, and like tempered steel, like a tree in the West Texas wind, we are stronger than we ever were before. And you are harder to break. Exult in that. Glory in that. Perseverance brings about proven character. It reveals whether we're genuine, whether we're authentic, whether we're a fair-weather Christian. You don't know how deep-rooted your faith is until the storm comes, until it's tested. Exult in that. Glory in that. Because proven character ultimately produces hope. How? How does character produce hope? Because when you know your faith is real, you know the reward of faith is coming too. And you will inherit glory. One of the main things that robs us of hope and joy and our assurance is the fear that our faith is hypocritical. That we got it from our parents, that we got it, we're going through the motions. Fiery trials attack hypocrisy and eliminate the threat to our assurance. Exult in that. Praise God for that. And so these are the arguments for glorying and tribulation. And finally, he just gives us an experience. What you are holding on to is not false. We talked about that last time. Peter said, we're eyewitnesses. It's not a fable. It's not a myth. It will not disappoint you. And if you don't want to be disappointed, you've got to let it go of false expectations in this life and entitlement to specific outcomes. My hope is not just that God would remove the adversity or me from the adversity, but that He would always do what's best. Let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not as I will, but thy will be done. If that's not my attitude and perspective, I won't be able to see the good He is working and extracting from the bad. I will question God's love, His care, His providence, His dominion, based on what I see, what I feel, based on if He is responding to my request the way I think God should. And I'll walk away before I get to the end of the road. Before I get to the reward the eternal glory in Christ, I'll walk away having experienced all the pain and suffering in this life without all the comfort in the next. (laughs) And so if you're going to respond in a way that glorifies God, brings others to Christ, and increases your hope and holiness, you've got to have a good theology. Verse 12. You've got to have the hope of glory. Verse 13. And finally, you've got to fear what becomes of those who walk away. Those who don't have faith those who don't obey the gospel. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And I believe this is not necessarily the second coming and ultimate judgment, but the fiery judgment, the purifying judgment. That's the context of 1 Peter. This 200-year persecution that's that's occurring, that's starting. It's going to start the house of God and you're going to suffer. But what about those who aren't in the house of God? You're going to suffer forever. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That doesn't seem very comforting at first, does it? When you read that and you're about you're suffering and he's preparing you for that, and you go, hmm, what comfort until you focus on the word saved and you realize that this judgment is not your condemnation, it's your purification. And that's the love of God. That's proof of the care and concern of God. This same judgment that's punishing to unbelievers is purifying for believers. 
Scarcely does not mean you're barely going to make it. If you know the grace of God, you know that's not true. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. An abundant entrance shall be supplied in the everlasting kingdom of God. You're not going to barely make it. The God of all grace who has all dominion. It means it's with great difficulty. You're going to endure this judgment. The road to heaven is a road scattered with trials and tribulations and persecution and scars. The gates of pearl, pearls are formed with friction like diamonds are formed by pressure. And so the ultimate response we saw in chapter 1, we see in chapter 3, over and over, obey the gospel. You are on your way to eternal evil, pain, and suffering if you don't obey the gospel. So you can suffer in hell forever, or you can become a Christian by obeying the gospel, deny yourself, suffer for a little while, and then have eternal glory. I just want to say, personally, for me, that was an easy decision. And I hope it's an easy decision for you this morning. If you need to respond to that invitation... If you want to avoid evil, pain, and suffering forever, if you want to be comforted by God forever, obey the gospel. Don't let Satan separate you from faith, repentance, and baptism. That's what he's seeking to do. Don't let him win. Put your faith and trust in God. Maybe as a Christian, you need to respond in faith and hope, focusing on what you know, what you believe, what you confessed, recognizing God's presence, inviting God's presence into your life, the sovereign hand of God that cares for you by humbling yourself and saying, I'm not perfect I need help. I've got problems. I can't bear this on my own. I need God and I need His army. I need His family. I need my brotherhood who are going through the same things. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Don't be ashamed. And trust, invest. It's a banking term. Endure and rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. If you're suffering this morning, the Lord has offered you this invitation. Come unto me. You that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Cast your sin, cast your burden, cast your pain and your suffering upon the Lord because He cares for you. And He invites you to come as we stand and sing.